Rhetoric in relationship to the scansion is the key to the action, but it has to also involve the scansion because the scansion is the framework that holds it in a, in a consistent pattern. Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on the program we have David Hammond. Hello, David. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. David Hammond is a former resident director for the American Conservatory Theater and the Yale Repertory Theater and artistic director emeritus of Playmakers Repertory Company. Mr. Hammond is a Shakespeare specialist who's directed productions, conducted workshops, and coached actors for theaters around the country and the entire world. Your complete biography is going to be available on our website, and it's very impressive. You've had a, a long and storied career training actors and, and directing Shakespeare. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about the stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's begin with a question that gets back to the origins of your interest in Shakespeare. How did you first become interested in Shakespeare? Oh, this is a this is a long story. <laughs> I was a child uh, actor for the craziest of reasons. My wonderful sister, when she was like four, she had a baby lisp, and my dad was a psychiatrist, and he was very concerned that she would uh, be embarrassed when she went to preschool. <laughs> so he brought a speech pathologist home, and the speech pathologist said, why don't you put her in a program, put her in some kind of program where she sings and talks. And if you want to do it right without causing stress, put both kids in. You got dragged along. <laughs> yeah, I was younger, and we went off to a, a school, the Jules Faber's studio in New York, which was a dancing, singing, talking school for kiddies. I really, I, I had no idea what it was about, you know, I mean, I just did it. It was like going to soccer or something, you know. Right. And that's how I got started. So I thank my sister. And then I saw my first Shakespeare when I was maybe five, and I was aware that when the actors spoke, more was happening than happened in a contemporary play or a contemporary film. And I didn't didn't know what it was. But I, I thought the actors were extraordinary because they would open their mouths and all this stuff happened. And I couldn't stop talking particularly about Vivian Lee as Cleopatra. And my dad, after I babbled away at it for several days, my dad said, you don't love Vivian Lee, you love Shakespeare. He was a psychiatrist, right? So he probably knew. <laughs> <laughs> and he subscribed me to a Shakespeare recording club when I was 11. And I got a play a month and I devoured them. And I, I was just aroused, really. I mean, it was a visceral connection. So you, you say a Shakespeare recording club, would they have sent you vinyl recordings in the mail or every month? Or how did that work? They did. <laughs> no. And that would be my weekend, you know, when it arrived. <laughs> and then I would play sections of it the way people play Broadway cast albums, you know. I'd play Vivian Lee in the messenger scene, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was notorious for playing them for friends, you know. She's been set up, she's in the hallway, and he's coming down the hall reading, and she stops him, and he thinks that she's a spy, and they used to be lovers. And, you know? <laughs> so even at that early age, you're, you're, you're communicating context to your peers. Well, I guess so. Vivian Lee made an, an impression, and she must have been one of the actresses that was featured on these recordings are there any other household names or, or everybody of the era well my dad got me the complete orson wells you know all of them oh. 
this is a Luria lady, you know? Yes. <laughs> Gilgood, lots of Gilgood. Richardson, some Olivier, I, oh God, Donald Wolfett, who is pretty funny, Peter Finch, uh, Vanessa Redgrave, Ian Holm, Ian Richardson, really everybody who was working. I love the idea of first becoming enamored with Shakespeare through the audio recording medium, because I, I think that that would be so, such an interesting entree in, into the world. Oh, I, think, I think it's the essence. I, I think, you know, the plays live on the language in a way that many contemporary audiences and contemporary actors just are not aware of. That brings me to the question that I had, which was, you said when you were five, you saw Shakespeare production and you said more was happening. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go into that just a little bit? What do you mean when you say more was happening than what you were seeing or hearing? Okay, you're asking me to connect a five-year-old observation to a... (laughs) Absolutely. <laughs> so I'll try to Come do on, that. What were you comparing it with? I, what, what were the popular entertainments yeah. of the day for the five-year-old crowd? <laughs> well, I saw lots of plays, lots of musicals, and I, I love musicals. I think there's a great, there's a similarity between the way a musical works and the way Shakespeare works. And good singing, not kinesthetic, visceral, physical singing, but the communication of imagery through a musical phrase is very similar to Shakespeare. I think he took things that were happening in the English Renaissance because of Henry VIII and Henry VIII's attempt to unite England through education. And he started the grammar school system, the free grammar school system. And the Renaissance education was primarily influenced by Erasmus, the teachings of Erasmus. And Erasmus believed that rhetoric was the essence of education because it was how language makes you think, how you can use language to further ways of thinking, how your thinking becomes more sophisticated through language. And particularly when you add rhetoric to basic language, thought extends. You know, you think in images when you're a child, you get words, you begin to add words to to convey the image. The basis of speaking is image to image. And the first image that you say will generate the second image because of your intention. Mm. Johnny Potty! You know, Johnny knows he has to potty when he says Johnny, right? So if you say Johnny's action, you know, Johnny, it's got to be potty or will burst or it's something urgent in the second image. So if you try to act Johnny, if you generate the first image with the right intention, the second image will come. And Uh rhetoric codified that. Rhetoric looked at the way that we place images in relationship to each other with different intentions, all classical rhetoric the Greek and Roman rhetoric, is about persuasion, right? The purpose of rhetoric is how do I move my listeners where I want them to be? So Shakespeare takes the same thing, and he's the first playwright to do this. He takes persuasion and turns it into an objective in actions. Because, of course, how am I trying to move my listener to a certain place? So he took the devices of rhetoric, which rely on that generative imaging, and placed them into the dialogue of the plays. And, of course, it's conscious. He learned this in grammar school. So you think that Shakespeare must have attended grammar school? Or was tutored, but he certainly knew Latin. And if he took the grammar school curriculum in Stratford, and his father was far enough up in that he would have had the privilege of attending. And it was taught by rote. It was taught, you know, you were drilled. You had a dictation, and then you had several hours every day of rote repetition of the figures. The teacher would read a selection in Latin, and the boy would translate it into English, and the boy was supposed to translate it into English in the same rhetorical form. That meant moving around the use of English, and the only way to translate the Latin, and this is how English rhetoric happens, is to take the image word and make that the center to generate the figure. The figure is on the image word, and there's lots of writings about this. John Brinsley wrote a wonderful book. It's called Ludus Literarius, or The Grammar School. 
and it is the curriculum of the grammar school and how a teacher should teach. And he talks about delivery, uh, and he says, I'm going to paraphrase, but he says that you must teach the boys to find the key word on which the figure depends for its meaning, the key words on which the figure depends for its meaning, and elevate them. Mm. And, and when I found that, really blew my mind because I'd been teaching use those words for years. It's the difference between stress it, hit it, slam it, and elevate it. If you lift the operative word of the figure, all the other words fall into line to make the connection. And that's, in fact, how you speak. You know, let's go back to Johnny and the potty, you know. Johnny, potty! Okay, now, those are the key words of the figure. The rest of the words, Johnny needs to go to the potty! They will fall in as you elevate Johnny and potty. But if you try to stress Johnny and potty, you Johnny needs to go to the potty, you become a robot. This has no life. And the reason for your breath, the intention, the breath is supported by the intention. The breath is motivated by the intention. So my urgency to get to the bathroom, right? Johnny needs to go to the potty. And the whole sentence has enormous flexibility. I'm not dealing with every word. I'm generating the key images and all the words in between are to connect them. And those are spontaneous. And if I actually do that, I will be talking in the moment. I'm really present. What I find really interesting about this, and I, I agree completely, of course, is that a lot of actors are taught to look for the verb. And you didn't deal with the verb in Johnny Potty. Well, needs does not have an image. You have to need something. Right. You know, kill has an image. I, I think a lot of teaching, and this is, I have to say this very carefully, but we tend to pass on in the theater, we pass on the surface we see other people doing something, or some teacher told someone 20 years ago, do this. And we pass on the surface, you know, a lot of band-aids, a lot of on-the-surface fixings. So you'll, you'll be told by teachers, oh, always lift the end of the line. Well, what does that have to do with acting or intention or character, you know? But by actually completing the figure, your voice will sustain, and you will lift the end of the line when it is right to do it. If you are connected and you have the thought clear and you have the imagery in your head properly. Actually generating the imagery rather than by muscle memory repeating the sound of it when you learned it. So it seems to me as you approach teaching actors, you would first start working with rhetoric, language, and thought. In a class, yes, I coach a lot. And when I coach an actor, I listen to them and then I go into that particular speech and explain. I said, well, see, this really is this, and this really is this, and this connects, and the and is not operative, and the I is not operative, and the not is not operative, because there's no images there. So a lot of myths always lift the end of the line, only breathe at the end of a line. Well, where is the end of the line? Why would you breathe at the end of a verse line if the thought continues to the middle of the next line? Right. But it's a run-on line. I see no reason to take a breath at the end of the verse line. I think it defeats what the line is. And to artificially lift, I think it's misunderstanding. I think people misunderstand and you'll go in and someone has been told, you say, why are you doing that? I say, well, you should lift the end of the line. Well, you wanna not lose the end of the line, absolutely, but how about looking at this? And you can get the actor much more flexible and much more alive and also much more easy to understand. I think mechanically lifting the end of the line, if the actor doesn't know what they're saying, increases the possibility that the line might be understood because it keeps it loud, it keeps it up, it keeps it going. But it's not right. giving the actor the control. It's not putting the actor in charge of, of leading you through this imagery. It seems a little bit by rote. Yeah, I think so. 
And uh, there's a big thing of over-articulation of initial consonants. It's really not the initial consonant that matters. It's the final one. Absolutely. And, and the final one doesn't close off the word. It shoves the word forward like a ping pong, like a tennis ball. You know, the final consonant is, you know, to continue, you know, descend. Yeah, it's like a spring. Yeah, not descend. Right, moving to the next image or the next word. Right, of course. And, and you hear, oh, there must be movement all the way through a line. So you want movement across an entire phrase, and the rhetorical figures structure that movement for you. Uh, I, I don't think it's necessary to know the figures. There are over 200 figures that are regularly yes. used by the Elizabethans. And they also, like any other group of geeks, delighted in adding pretty figures. You know, In uh, The Art of English Posey, Putnam explains some figures, and he says, a, a pretty variation is this, and he'll be changing the slightest little thing. And calling it a new figure. Right. I'm friends with a, a wonderful artist, Mary Overly, who's the creator of Viewpoints. And Mary teaches, is it five, is it seven? She teaches a limited number and believes that in the combination of all those, there's an infinite variety. You apply this simple grid of perception, and then it opens up a lot of other things that have multiple variations, right? And then, of course, since then, people keep adding new viewpoints. Well, then there's this one, and there's this one, and there's this one, and there's this one, and they're really combinations. I love that because that means think, someone's interested. Oh, sure. But I don't think the writers did it. I think the analysts did it. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course. You know, rhetoric works. We use rhetoric all the time. Rap is rhetoric, and rap is very similar to Shakespeare. Very. And coming from the same kind of movement, growing out of a popular culture. At the risk of being overly reductive, it sounds like maybe one possible way for the actor to approach speaking the words is to begin with thought and image, rhetoric. That's a good idea, yeah. And <laughs> breath, body, sound, action, objective, and character may follow from the generative nature of the thoughts and the images that emerge from the words. Oh, you're good. The way rhetoric works, oh, here's a popular form of rhetoric, okay? Please complete it. Right. Okay, so we know in a limerick, there's the initial premise, and then there's the modifying premise. Now we're going to take the initial premise and extend it and probably do a run online. And now here's the payoff. I know that when I start to talk, you know that as soon as I start to say it. So you're listening in this shared rhetoric. You're listening for the punchline and you're listening for the modifier. Rhetorical figures do the same thing, and they're based on ways that we normally use speech. You know, I place something in opposition and I'm going to do this. So the figures sort of dictate themselves. Once you've worked on them and know them and they become part of your understanding of the language, you start to generate an image and you may suddenly take that figure and go a little bit farther than it's been used before or add a modifying thing to it that wasn't there before. Rap does the same thing. Rap, actually, the scansion in rap is very similar to iambic pentameter because it's very similar. I mean, it's the it's the rhythm of English, so it's that's going to happen. But it also places the key beats of the line in the second and fifth foot, which is exactly where iambic pentameter places. So the organization of the rhythm in rap is the the underlying rhythm is similar to the organization that Shakespeare's scansion does. And speaking of thought and image, the text that you've chosen to share with us today is full of imagery, and that text is Oh for a Muse of Fire, very well-known opening chorus from Henry V. Why begin with this text? Well, because it's about everything that 
Shakespeare's theater was about. And his verse gets increasingly sophisticated, of course, across his career. One of the things that we've noticed about this speech is that it contains a lot of trochees, particularly in the first lines. So for our listeners, we're about to read this speech. For our listeners, what what should they listen for in order to be able to identify a trochee? What's a trochee? A trochee is a foot that starts with a long beat followed by a short beat. Scansion for the Elizabethans, this is kind of revolutionary, but it shouldn't be. <laughs> Scansion is about time, not stress. Can you explain? Yeah. Now, for most people in contemporary verse, scansion is about stress. Scansion is the time signature. And there are plenty of Elizabethan Thomas Campion, for example, very well-known poet, wrote very clearly that iambic consists of a short beat followed by a long beat. And trochee is a long beat followed by a short beat. And then he goes on with anapest and so on and so on. And this is from Latin. Latin verse is quantitative. It is not about stress. It's about length. Right. And he is the first playwright to do it. Marlowe does not do it. You know, people talk about Marlowe's mighty line, and but in his plays, everyone sounds alike. There's no verse characterization. There's just the steady use of iambic. Shakespeare puts the two together, and the iambic is the underlying rhythmic time signature, like the beat in music. But he, he boy, does he play with it. Because he plays with it by putting on it another grid of rhetorical structures that fall in different places within the line so that within within the rhetoric you're talking an infinite number of rhythms you know you can have a rhetorical figure that when you isolate the figure it is a trochaic figure because it starts in the middle of a foot and begins with the long beat the audience hears the rhythm of the figure they don't hear the rhythm of the scansion or they should they should hear the rhythm within the figure Sure, well, that's length will fall in line with stress. You know, sometimes length is correct. But yes, O4 is a trochee because the O is long. And 4 is a short diphthong here because it's an inoperative word, right? And amuse is an iam. But I think this enormous misconception of using scansion as the guide to stress, it's not. It's the rhythmic organization. And then you play with the rhetorical figures which fall across the scansion in different ways and have within the figure different rhythms. And the interaction of the two enables the audience to hear when it changes. If you just did it as suppose if you didn't have the underlying rhythmic scansion and you just did, oh, for a muse of fire, that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, you know, ignoring any possibility of underlying rhythm. And the next person speaks a different speech the same way, you cannot hear if there is a change in the relationship of the scansion to the record in the next speech. Consistency of the underlying scansion is what enables you as an audience to hear that the next character has a different voice. And if you combine the scansion as just, oh, that's another, that's another indication of stress, you lose that. So the play becomes harder to understand. And the great tool that he gives the actor, which is the character-specific language, gets lost. So you lose the major tool that he gave the actor if you don't honor the scansion. But honoring the scansion, it's the same thing in music, okay? The beat is what makes, is one of the tools that makes the sense of rhythm happen. Scansion is the beat. I did a workshop recently with Leslie Odom, who mm-hmm. marvelous, marvelous artist, and he talked about his training at Carnegie and, and missing Shakespeare. And he said, he was talking about how thrilled he was to do Hamilton and how... Mm how the rap in it was Shakespearean, and I agree with him. You're not the first person on our podcast who has said that very same thing. No. Have they said they hate it? No, they've said that it, <laughs> they think that Hamilton is Shakespearean. 
Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, 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 they totally agree with you. Yeah, so we have to start thinking about Shakespeare that way, don't we? Because we see it works. <laughs> you know, <laughs> nobody in Hamilton violates violates the rhythm while they're talking the images. Well, that brings to mind, you know, the speech that we're we're talking about, which is Henry V, and and Can you, you tell know, I'm avoiding you, it. Yeah. yeah, no, you're. I know what you're doing. You're avoiding reading it, and you don't have to read it. It's totally okay. We'll I'll have read. Garrett read it. What? <laughs> I'm just kidding. So. Putting all this together, when an actor approaches a text, many people say, sit down and scan first. Do the scansion, yes. see what happens. Um, but you, you do agree. the scansion to find the underlying rhythmic structure. Then you go to the rhetoric right away. And it is the interaction of the two that is the key to making the language speak. To just do the scansion is not going to help you speak it. And, and God forbid that the audience should hear the scansion. You know, there's nothing more deadly than uh, it said, oh, God, you could die. <laughs> for the record, would you like to just read these uh, words from uh, the Ophir Musifier speech? Okay, give me a second here because I have to get my brain in gear. Oh, for a Musifier that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. Pardon, gentle soul, the flat unraised spirits that hath dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon, since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million, and let us ciphers to this great account. Your imaginary forces work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies whose high upreared and abutting fronts the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Peace out our imperfections with your thoughts. Into a thousand parts divide one man and make imaginary puissance. Think when we talk of horses that you see them printing their proud hoofs in the receiving earth. Here's your thoughts that now must deck our kings, carry them here and there, jumping o'er times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass. For the which supply, admit me chorus to this history, who prologue-like your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge, our play. So beautiful. That's fantastic. Thank you, David. I need coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I, well I, mean, the, I love your attack on it. It's great. The thing about that speech is it's just tremendously fun, isn't it? it it's so fun to do. Yeah, I have a friend. He's very, very experienced. He did this in a, in a production and and went up in, in like the first three sentences. And I think he's done it for years. He's done the play before, you know? And the danger is that it's so rhetorical and so brilliantly structured that the fun of the physicality of doing it stops you from going to the mental, which is the generator. And you gotta resist. You can't get off, you know? You can't find pleasure in, oh, for a muse of fire! You know, you can't. Unless, yeah. unless it happens because that's what your use of imaging is 
making happen. One of the things I, I noticed, and I know that you're not an actor, but you definitely made a choice around line 18 when you got to the imagination. Mm-hmm. You slowed down your pacing and you softened your voice a little bit. And <laughs> is, is there a reason for that or was that just random? No, there was a change in action, but I didn't consciously soften my voice or consciously okay. the action changed, you know? And right. He makes a bargain. He he works out a contract. He he gets them to play their part. And all of the devices of the prosody in Shakespeare, you know, the tools of the versification, are tools of action. They're not tools of expression. You know, dramatic verse is character in action. Literary verse, the devices of the prosody, alliteration, and simile metaphor, they can be used to illustrate daffodils bobbing in the wind. Shakespeare doesn't. Mm-hmm the sounds to illustrate the images he uses the sounds to help you do what the images are meant to do so he starts here by manipulating the audience's attention and when he gets to pardon gentles all the flat unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object and then he plays in this cockpit and, and very sneaky he introduces plosive alliteration in the middle of cockpit and the p becomes a running thing that builds through the rest of the speech. And Shakespeare was an actor, right? Because he's the only playwright who is aware of what sounds are easy to talk. He's the only one that makes sure the actor has something to wrap the mouth around to drive a point on. You know, when Richard II is on Flint Castle and agrees to descend, he has that wonderful, down, down I come like glistering Phaeton wanting the manage of unruly steeds, talking about Phaeton losing control of the sun chariot and falling from the sky. Yes, he's very literary, Richard. He's very self-conscious. He's very affected. But he's not illustrating the chariot falling. He's not getting down, down I come, like glistering Phaeton once in <laughs> image of unruly steeds. He's self-flagellating. He's using that image to flagellate. And the sounds, the D and the N and the C, you know, it's like slamming himself in the chest, you know, down, down I come, like glistering Phaeton, wanting the manage of unruly steeds, you low people down there who I hate so much, right? <laughs> it's his action. Sounds are used for his action, not for illustrating. So in this speech, he's manipulating audience attention. So can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? I, I yank you in with cockpit, and then I stretch you with vasty fields of France. And then I go back to pulling it in. Or maybe cram within this wooden O, and then I open again. The very casks, and of course we're open to the sky, right? The very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt. And I go into releasing on A sounds again, and A diphthongs. And I, I expand, I'm almost massaging your ears with different ways of hearing. And then I get very factual. Oh, pardon, since a crooked figure may attest in a little place of million. And you know, the Elizabethans, all the liberal arts, were considered forms of magic. Language is magic. Mm-hmm. So dramatic verse creates reality. Within the dramatic verse, the event is real. And of course, in the 20th century, this is what we also say about acting. The action is real. And you are seeing that actually played out within a limited frame. But within that frame, the art creates reality. So Shakespeare with language creates real action. To your point about about the magical nature of the humanities, certainly for 
an audience when they're caught up in the spell of suspension of disbelief it is like kind of magic sure and it's it's a lovely thing that we do this exploration of it's controlled by the actor and and it's in their control and the survival of the future of shakespeare is going to be in the individual act david thank you so much for spending time with us and uh, dabbling in the rough magic of this imagery in this uh, speech and it's been delightful talking to you it's been a pleasure thank you david thank you thank you for asking I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.